Welcome to Through the Bible with Les Feldick, a 30-minute walk through the scriptures teaching in-depth Bible truths that change people's lives. Now, here's your host, Les Feldick. Good afternoon. Good to have everybody back. And uh, we always like to let our television audience know that uh, we tape four programs on a Wednesday afternoon here in Tulsa. And uh, we always appreciate your letters. Ma, you don't know how. We appreciate your letters. They, they don't have to be formal. They don't have to be long. But uh, just a little comment to know that the Lord is using us. Because you see, when, when folk give their money, uh, I have to have confirmation that the Lord is using it for His glory. Otherwise, it would be just money wasted from your end of it and uh, as well as ours. But when we realize that from your letters, from your phone calls, that the Lord is using our teaching to open the book to a better understanding. And as I just shared with the class, nothing thrills me more than when someone writes and says, I never before understood the difference between God dealing with Israel and the church. Well, that just tells me that something is coming through. So anyway, we want you to appreciate and know that we appreciate your letters and your phone calls and always be aware that all of these programs, all these lessons are available on videotape. Many of them now are available in printed form. The pools are just working day and night, I guess, to transcribe and uh, won't be very long until all the programs that are on tape will also be available in print. Now realize these are not authored books. They are just word-for-word -word transcriptions from what I'm saying here in the class. And maybe someday we'll take the time to put all this into an authored book where we can have the footnotes and the bibliography and all the rest. But so far, these booklets are just transcriptions. All right, so much for announcements again, and now we're going to pick right up where we left off in our last program, which was in Acts chapter 1. And uh, we'd left off in verse 11, where they had just seen the Lord ascend from out of their midst on the Mount of Olives. And now they return back, of course, to Jerusalem, and they're congregating in an upper room. Now, I don't know what that situation was. It must have been a rather large facility because we've got at least 120 people meeting here, and uh, I even wonder if that isn't just the men, and then there were women and others besides. So wherever they were meeting, it must have been rather commodious, must have had a fair amount of room. But now they were instructed, do you remember, by the Lord back there in, uh, in chapter 1, oh, where was it, where they were to wait, and uh, that's what they're doing. There's 10-day interval now, remember, from the ascension until we get into the coming down of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. So in this 10-day interval now, we see them congregated in Jerusalem in the upper room. And if you'll read the names or count them in verse 13, they're all 11 there, all 11 apostles, plus other men and, like I said, other women and probably children. And then in verse 15, now we'll continue on, in those days, in other words, in that 10-day period between his ascension and chapter 2, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, that is, these believers, these followers now of Christ as their Messiah, and the number of the names together were about 120. Now, I have made the comment, and I say it cautiously, is this all the believers that there were in the area of Jerusalem after three years of ministry? I tend to think so. Now, of course, like I said, there were, there were women, but of the men, 120. 
Now, I'm not going to be, you know, just real strong on the point, but I, I have taught it before, and I know one time I had just taught it the night before, and the next day I got a little book in the mail from someone, I don't remember where it was, but that was his approach, that after three years of Christ's earthly ministry, in the immediate environs of Jerusalem, this was the sum total of his fruit. And I can sort of believe that. But whatever, take it for whatever it's worth, and uh, it just says that there were 120 men, not counting the women. All right, so now Peter realizes that since Jesus had left them with the idea that the kingdom was still at hand, he has not told them that it's going to be postponed for 1900 and some years, and since the kingdom is going to be ruled by Christ with the 12, remember, ruling whom? The 12 tribes of Israel. Well, if you've got 12 tribes, you have to have how many? Well, you have to have 12, and there's only 11. And so Peter sees the uh, imperativeness now of filling that 12th slot so that they're ready for the return of Christ when he sets up his kingdom. So in verse 16, he says, Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit by the mouth of David spake before, concerning Judas, who was guide to them who took Jesus, for he was, Judas, numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Indeed he had. He had been with them the whole three years. He was even uh, one of the officers. What was his office? He was the treasurer. He held the bag, see? And so indeed he had a part in the ministry, although we know that he never had a spiritual part of it because Jesus said himself, I think back in John, that he was a what? He was a devil or a demon, not just those last few weeks, but from where? From the beginning, see? And so he had completely fooled the other 11 men, but he had never fooled Jesus. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew what he was. But uh, that, of course, is why David, by inspiration, prophesied it. Now, I guess this came up the other night, and I always have to stop and, uh, for benefit of our television people, just as well as our class people. How many times haven't people suggested, well, poor old Judas, he never had a chance. You know, God had already created him to be the betrayer. No, no, Judas wasn't put in that kind of a situation. Judas wasn't left without a choice. He had just as much choice as the others. But God, in his foreknowledge, knew what Judas would do when he was given the opportunity, and so prophecy foretold it. Now, of course, when prophecy foretells it, then it has to happen, otherwise the book becomes a lie. But never take away Judas's free will. He had full opportunity of accepting had he wanted to. But the psalmist foretold that he would betray and uh, that he would fall by transgression. Now, verse 18. Now, this man purchased the field with the reward of iniquity. Now, remember what he did when he took his 30 pieces of silver. He took them back to the priests at the temple, threw it at their feet because of his own guilt. And the priests, knowing it was blood money, of course, couldn't put it into the treasury. So they took it and bought the potter's field. 
with the money that Judas had thrown on the floor. And so that's why verse 18 gives Judas then the credit for purchasing the field, when in reality he didn't, the priest did. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. In other words, with the 30 pieces of silver he received for betraying the Christ. And falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. Now I've commented on this several months, or maybe even a couple years ago. You want to realize that before Judas actually betrayed there in the Garden of Gethsemane, who entered into him? Satan did. And so I would like to think that what happened here, as Judas now comes back and tries to get out of the whole situation, that as Satan leaves him, he literally just catapults the body of Judas. Now, there's a lot more than meets the eye, because you see, one point of Scripture, like it says here, that he was uh, burst asunder. In other words, that there was an actually bursting of, of his torso. And then another point of Scripture says that he was hung. Well, now, how are you going to reconcile the two? Because it's not that Scripture is contradictory. But you've got to be able to put all these things together. So what I like to think is that as a result of this catapulting action of, of Satan himself as he leaves the body of Judas, it could have actually catapulted him to the place where he hung on a, on a low branch of a tree or on a, on a fence post or anything like that. So he ended up in both categories. He would literally burst asunder, but he also ended up being hung on a tree. Well, that's just something to make you dig into the book, and uh, I throw some of these things out just to make people study a little more. All right, now verse 19. Now this was known unto all the dwellers of Jerusalem, insomuch as that field is called in their proper tongue Al-Kodama, that is to say the field of blood, because it had been purchased with blood money. And then he goes back, of course, uh, Luke, as he writes, to the book of Psalms, where it says, let his habitation be desolate, let no man dwell therein. And his bishopric, his office, see, as one of the twelve. And his bishopric let another take. Now then, Peter says, wherefore of these men who have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. All right. I'm sure most of you have heard, and I remember one of the great Bible teachers on the radio when I was young, I can still hear him say it, that he thought that Peter was being presumptuous here, Peter was jumping the gun, that Peter should have waited for the Apostle Paul to fill this twelfth slot. And I've heard others say that. But I come right back and I said, now how can educated, good, solid Bible teachers make a statement that Paul should have been in here. Because look at the qualifications. That's all you have to do. Just look at the qualifications. It had to be someone, verse 22, who had been a follower of Christ from what time? From John the Baptist, at the very beginning of his earthly ministry. And he had to have been a follower all through the three years right up until the ascension. Paul wouldn't have fit that. You couldn't drive Paul into that slot with a sledgehammer because he was, a, he was an opposer of Christ. He called Jesus of Nazareth a blasphemer. He would have never fit this. 
And so evidently, out of the 120-some men that are gathered, there were only two that had been the followers and believers of Christ right from the beginning all the way through his ministry until he had ascended. And who are they? Well, Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. Now then, they put, I think, I think they put some sort of a choosing device, either a dice or a short and a long stick. Now, you know, when you go back into the Old Testament, what did God or how did God arrive at some of these decisions by using the priest? What, what were the little stones? What were they called? The umen and the thumen. You remember those two words? Well, those umen and thumen were evidently two little gemstones that went into a pouch behind the ephod. And uh, somehow or other, and, and Scripture doesn't define it, but when they had to have a decision of yes or no, the priest would pull out the umen and thumen and maybe throw them on a table like we would dice. But however they would end up, that was God's answer, yes or no. And much the same thing, I think, takes place here. I don't think it was a vote of, of 120 hands and so forth, but somehow or other now they, they get God's decision by the choice between these two men. And then, of course, we find in verse 26 that they gave forth their lots. In other words, they cast these things out for the, for the matter of choosing. And the lot fell upon Matthias. Now, again, I've heard some argue, well, this doesn't really tell us that Matthias was God's choice. Well, what are you going to do with the last part of the verse? I think it says it as clearly as it can say it, that he was numbered with the eleven. He became the twelfth man. And it was God's choice, not Peter's, not just the twelve, but God had foreordained now that Matthias is to fill that slot that's been left open by Judas's transgression. All right, now as we come into chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, and the first thing I always have to point out to people is you come back with me to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus is not a church day. Leviticus, I mean, uh, Pentecost is not a church day. Pentecost is a what? It's one of the Jewish feast days. It's one of the seven feasts of Jehovah listed here in Leviticus 23. And it was to be 50 days after the Passover. And it started way back here in Sinai as they were given these various feast days for the nation of Israel now coming under the law. All right, in Leviticus 23, of course, in uh, verse 4, you have the Passover. And then in verse 6, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then in verses 9 through 14, you have the Feasts of Firstfruits. And then you come down to verse 10, uh, 15, I'm sorry. You come down to verse 15, and here is the next feast. And you shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths complete. How many days is that? Well, that's 49. But then they were to go to the next day, and that would be? 50. And so the word Pentecost arises from that. Pente means 50. And so this was the 50th day after Passover, and it became a feast day. 
And it was one of the seven feasts that was practiced year in and year out throughout Israel's history. Now then, come back with me to Acts chapter 2 and don't forget the, the setting. Christ has just been crucified at the time of Passover. And now they were waiting for Pentecost, which would be the 50th day. Forty days he was with them in his post-resurrection ministry to them. And then they waited another 10 days, and now we come to the 50th day. And don't lose sight of this. Remember, too, the background. Every one of these seven Jewish feast days, Jews would come to Jerusalem from the whole then-known world, which was predominantly the Roman Empire, all the way from Great Britain to India on the east, from northern Africa, and across the Mediterranean Sea over to Greece and Asia Minor and so forth. And so all these Jews would come to Jerusalem. Now remember, the temple is still operating. No one has told these Jewish believers or anyone else to cast aside temple worship, cast aside the law. No one has said anything about that. And so these Jews are still practicing these seven feast days. And here we have Pentecost. Now, keep that in your mind and watch how clearly the Scripture points it out. Verse 1, so when the day of Pentecost was fully come, the 50th day after Passover, they were all, that is, these 120 plus the women over in chapter 1, and they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly, just suddenly, just out of the blue, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Nothing visible, but just like on a windy day, you can look out the window. You can't see the wind, but you can see the results of it. You see the tree leaves blowing, and you see other things blowing, but you can't see wind. You can't see air. Now, the same way here. The Holy Spirit came in. It wasn't anything that they could see, but they could feel its result. All right? Now then in verse 3, in order for them to, do, to be able to see something, there appeared unto them cloven, that is, separated. In other words, when the word cloven is just like when you talk about beasts with cloven hooves. You're talking about sheep and goats and cattle who have the two aspects of a hoof instead of a round one like a horse or a camel. All right, same here. These little tongues of fire were cloven. They were one, but they had a, a separation. And so there were cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. Now, again, I always have to be careful. It doesn't say it was fire, does it? It didn't burn their hair. But it was, from outward appearances, like little flames of fire. But it wasn't fire. It was like unto fire. Makes a big difference. And it sat upon each of them. Now verse 4. And they were all, the 120 plus however many others that there were of these Jewish believers. Now when I maintain the, the believer aspect, always remember how much had these Jews been able to believe. That Jesus was the Christ. That's it. That's all they were to believe that he was who he said he was, as he showed it through his three years of signs and wonders and miracles. All right? So they were filled, all of them, 
with the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages. Now, the Greek word for tongues does not mean an unknown gibberish. It means a language, an understandable language. Now, you want to remember, ever since the Tower of Babel, there have been all kinds of dialects and languages throughout the then known world. And these Jews, now again, this is all background. These Jews have been out there in a dispersion. You want to remember the ten tribes of the northern kingdom went into captivity into Syria about, uh, oh, 750, 775 B.C. And they never really came back as tribes, and that's why some people call them the lost tribes. But they were out there in a dispersion already. Then about 150 years later, the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, which we call Judah, they were taken captive all the way to Babylon, and only a few thousand came back after the 70 years. So what happened to the rest of them? Well, they were assimilated into that whole Middle East. Now, it's just like here in America. We were talking about it again the other night. If any of you happen to come from a community that still has the old European ethnic background, and I know we've got several in here, when those immigrants came over, even though they tried to learn the English as quickly as they could, but as their little children came along, what did those kids learn first? Well, the native language that their parents had come from, German or Dutch or French or Greek or whatever it may have been. And so a lot of the kids of years gone by were bilingual. In fact, I imagine we still have a lot of that amongst the Orientals and so forth that have immigrated in the last generation. And it isn't until two or three generations go by that they lose that mother tongue and then they pick up their, uh, their adopted language, which here in America, of course, is English. So the same way here. These Jews now have been living out in all these other Gentile nations, and they have picked up that language. Their children have been raised under it. And so they've probably almost forgotten the language of Aramaic and uh, Hebrew and so forth. And so they come into Jerusalem speaking the language of the other nations to the east, the nations in northern Africa of Greece and Italy and Spain and Great Britain. Now you can understand that. And so all these Jews are coming in with various language background. But they're languages. They're all separate languages. All right? Verse 5. So there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews. See how plain that is? We're not dealing with Gentiles here. We're dealing with Jews. It's a Jewish feast day at the temple. And so they're dwelling at Jerusalem, Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Not as plain language. Every nation in the then known world. And I've already delineated that. From Great Britain on the west to the, at least the western part of India, the Indus River and so forth, on the east. All these nations had Jewish communities in them. Now, the other important word in here is devout. So what kind of Jews would spend the money and take the time to come back to a feast day? Well, the devout ones, see, that were practicing their religion. And that's why they were here. Thousands of them. All right, out of every nation under heaven. Now, verse 6. Now, when this was noised abroad, 
the multitude came together and were confounded. They were amazed because that every man, whether he was from India, whether he was from Syria, whether he was from Greece, Italy, Spain, Great Britain, Morocco, as we now know it, Northern Africa, Egypt, wherever these Jews had come from and had been assimilated and had embraced that language, what happened here? They heard these 12 men especially, the 12 disciples now, speaking their language. Now I have to emphasize that because this is where we're in so much confusion today. These believing Jews were speaking the languages of the people that had come in from every end of the empire. And that's what it says. Every man heard them, that is, these, these 12, or if you want to include the 120, but I think it was mostly the 12, they heard them speak in their own language, not some gibberish language. Now verse 7, and they, that is, this multitude of Jews, they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these who speak Galileans? Now, remember when Jesus was choosing the twelve? What part of Israel was he? Well, he was up in northern Israel. He was in Galilee. And so the twelve were all from Galilee. Now, you know, there's a, there's a culture situation here. Jerusalem, of course, where the temple has been and where all of the activity of the priests and so forth, they were more cultured, they were more educated, and especially in biblical things, than those up in northern Israel. Northern Israel was more rural, and they weren't as highly educated. I mean, after all, most of those people were, were farmers and sheep herders and so forth. And they probably just stuck out like a sore thumb. You know, I, I've always told my kids, now I don't mind you being a farmer's kid, and I don't mind you letting people know you're a farmer. I've never shrunk from that. But I'll tell you what, when I walk into the city, I don't want some city dude be able to see me stick out like a sore thumb and say, hey, there goes a farmer. I'll never forget when I farmed up north, I did quite a little banking in one of the big banks in Minneapolis, and I could have never been paid a higher compliment. I found out years later the guy became president of the whole Northwest Bank situation. But anyhow, I'll never forget one day, I, I was walking through the lobby, and uh, I came into his office, and he says, you know, Les, he said, just looking at you, I would never dream that you're a farmer. And I said, that's the way I want it. <laughs> that's the way I want it, because when I leave the farm, I don't want to look like one. And there's nothing wrong with that. But these Galileans, see, they, they were rural. And these 12 men evidently just showed that they were not from that cultured area of Jerusalem. And the crowd could tell it. And so they said, now, wait a minute. How can these guys all talk all these languages? They can't be that educated. And you know, that is a, po that is a point of education. You remember when we were in Israel, our guide, spoke perfect English. And then I asked him one day, I said, now what do you do when a bunch of Italians come? Oh, he said, I can speak Italian. Well, come to find out the guy was brilliant. He could speak fluently seven languages. Now what's the first thing I thought of? Hey, this guy is brilliant. We want to invite you to visit lessfeldick.com where you'll find all our programs available on audio, video, and in book form.
You'll also find many of our on-location teaching seminars held across the country, as well as the popular questions and answers book and many other study materials. Just go to lesfeldick.com. Thank you for watching Through the Bible with Les Feldick. Through the Bible is a partner-supported ministry. If this program has been a help to your study of the scriptures and you'd like to see others enjoy the teaching, your support would be greatly appreciated. Write to us at Les Feldick Ministries, 30706 West Lona Valley Road, Kenta, Oklahoma, 74552 or call 1-800-369-7856. Be sure to tune in next time to Through the Bible with Les Feldick.